Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Today, this morning, we are in John chapter 7, picking up at verse 14 and reading through verse 18. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Glad to see you all here this morning. For those that made it. Find my spot here. Eric Hoffer has said, Glory is largely a theatrical concept. There is no striving for glory without a vivid awareness of an audience. Glory can be defined a couple of ways. We can define it from the biblical perspective, something which is singularly afforded to God and to God alone. Splendor which has consequences for mankind, but it is solely God's. Or we can define it in more general terms, which is splendor or honor which characterizes a person or thing. I believe Eric Hoffer is exactly right in that glory is something that must be recognized by others in order to have it. An audience is required in order for glory to be recognized. And here's a fun fact for you to consider. If God has glory, and he does, did God have glory before creation? If you are a monotheist in the sense of Judaism, or Islam? The answer is no. Just as God in that sense could not be defined as love prior to creation. We always like to say God is love. But if God is the God of Islam or strict Judaism, God cannot be love. It's not possible. These attributes require recognition in order to be made manifest. As our God has revealed himself in his triune nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God has always had glory. And he has always been love. He can be those things because there was glory between the three persons. There was love between the three persons of God. But back to the point. Glory is something that humanity chases after and we chase after it because of our fallenness we want that which only God has in today's passage Jesus speaks about glory and how he came to bring glory to the Father he does this in contrast to those that speak of their own authority and bring glory to themselves what's the problem glory doesn't belong to anyone but God alone 
and we'll explore that we'll explore that concept here today. So verse 14, about the middle of the feast Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Considering the feast was 8 days in length, from this passage we can guess that Jesus made his way to the feast on day 4, day 5. Now we might ask the question, why did he wait until then? And why did he go to the temple and draw attention to himself? Those are both fair questions, I think, so let's take a crack at the answers. First, why did he wait? The simple and easy answer is, from our previous sermon from a couple weeks back, it was not his time. He is under the time appointed by the Father and not anyone else. The more difficult answer may be something akin to the Jewish rulers were on the lookout early for him, but after not seeing him for the first few days, allowed everything to sort of return to normal. He wasn't here, all the hype was gone, they were on high alert early waiting for him, but here it is, day three, four, five, somewhere in there, no one's seen him, things can go back to normal. It also prevented the people from preemptively proclaiming a triumphal entry, something that will take place in the future, but not now. Finally, there is some speculation that things were already pretty destabilized in Jerusalem due to Pilate's actions of mingling the blood of the Galilean martyrs with their sacrifices that we know from Luke chapter 13 and verse 1. This would, of course, outrage the Jewish people, so things were probably on high alert anyway. Overall, it was prudent of Jesus to bide his time in Galilee until such time that it was better suited to go up. Once he got there, he went to the temple and he did what rabbis do. He taught. Rabbis and scholars teaching in the temple during these feast times was quite normal, so for Jesus to go midweek and teach isn't entirely out of the ordinary. But if he didn't want to draw attention to himself, then why did he go and teach at the temple and do just that? Of course, when you show up to the temple and you start teaching as a rabbi, you're going to draw attention. I think it's fair to say that Jesus wanted the city to quiet down, which it did by midweek. Jesus came into the city quietly and without pomp and circumstance. When the time was right, Jesus, wanting to continue in his preaching and teaching of the kingdom of God, went and did just that. It isn't that Jesus doesn't want to draw a crowd, it's that Jesus must be in obedience to the Father and in conjunction with the plan of God. It brings the kind of type and attention that is needed exactly when it's required. So we come to verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when, his, when he has never studied? If you remember in your Bible reading that many times Paul mentions that he was a disciple of who? Disciple of Gamaliel. Gamaliel, of course, was one of the most, if, if not the most famous teacher, professor, lawyer of the time. He was right up there. Everyone knew who Gamaliel was. And this was to give you an indication of what Jews, uh, what the Jews were saying here. It's been said that people in antiquity were largely illiterate, but there has been some serious pushback on this assertion in recent years. It has been claimed by some that this period was one of the most educated for its time. 
there were schools and there were lawyers there were teachers maybe not all over the place but they were a little more abundant than what was originally thought and many knew more than one language and could read more than one language Jesus if you remember above his head when he was crucified had in three languages saying the same thing Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews of course the expectation would be that most people would know how to read at least one of those languages if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a sign to be placed above Jesus declaring essentially what his crime was if no one could read right so it leads that literacy was probably higher than what was originally thought in this case however the Jews marveled why were they marveling what was that about unlike Paul Jesus was a lowly carpenter uneducated as far as things of theology or law went he knew the scriptures he explained the scriptures he taught like no other before him when rabbis taught it was considered pretentious to speak on your own behalf or your own learning but rather it was considered honoring and learned to speak about what such and such or so and so has said regarding this topic or that topic Jesus said things like you've heard it said but I say this caused quite a stir now we aren't that different in our day are we there is something to academic rigor or reputation we all know that we don't hold a law degree from Harvard the same way we might look at a law degree from Athabasca Community College not saying Athabasca Community College even has a lawyer program I have no idea but you get what I'm saying we tend to have similar attitudes even now however in this case the comparison would be an RTS grad versus a carpenter with no Bible college at all and yet clearly the Jews were amazed and when we think about it further what kind of amazement might there be there are those that are going to be amazed in a positive way those that look and say this guy a carpenter and they would they would think in amazement like that's amazing no way right he wow this guy is amazing especially for a carpenter it would be very positive you'll have others that would marvel but not in such a positive way it would be more akin to this guy is a carpenter who does he think he is carpenter expounding the gospel expounding the scriptures you'll notice this kind and these kinds are everywhere uh, doesn't necessarily interact with what is being said but instead attack the person because they lack the qualifications of speaking about such things this of course is what we might know as pride hubris something we should all watch out for leads me to verse 16 so Jesus answered them my teaching is not mine but his who sent me of course if you haven't had any formal training and you can't name the person or people of the school that you attended or 
maybe you had a, that you were a disciple under in order to justify your teaching, it might be that person is therefore teaching their own thoughts and feelings on the subject. That, that makes sense. This, of course, would be considered a major faux pas and therefore could be ignored, no matter how wonderful or how accurate the teaching may have been. However, Jesus puts this to rest for us. Where does his teaching come from? Not himself, he says, but from him who sent him. From the context, we know that this is referring to God the Father. God is his teacher. God was the authority under which Jesus taught. And unlike the other teachers or preachers, Jesus received perfect teaching, not opinion. He didn't receive this from man, but from God himself. Jesus' authority didn't come from Gamaliel or any other well-known scholar, but from God who knows all things and knows all things perfectly. Jesus teaches under divine revelation, not under a school, not under a rabbi. God is the author of his teaching, and any that want to dispute it have to take it up with God. And here we come to one of two major themes that I want to cover today in verse 17. If anyone's willing, or sorry, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Notice first the order of things. We've covered this before, but here again it is emphasized for our learning, so we're going to cover it again. The will then, the will then follows knowledge. Will first, then knowledge. In this immediate context, the challenge of the hearers is, is what Jesus is saying and teaching of God, as he claims, or is it of himself? Or maybe even worse, the evil one. How will they know? Jesus gives them a very simple solution. If you are willing, if is of course a condition, if you are willing to do the will of God, you will know knowledge, the answer. Conversely, if you are not willing to do the will of God, you will not know whether or not Jesus is speaking from God or from his own authority. Jesus' claim all along has been what? That he's come to do the will of the Father and that he only does that which pleases the Father. We've seen this over and over again in the Gospel of John. We're going to see it over and over again moving forward. Jesus' challenge is essentially, if your heart is to follow God, then your heart will incline you to follow me. And by following me, you will know the truth. This truth is highly applicable even today. There are many outside the church that look at things from a certain perspective regarding truth. I don't have all day to go through them. All, there's a lot, but let's look at a couple. One such claim to, G, uh, to, to reject Jesus or one such reason to reject Jesus and his teachings is because Jesus claims things like absolute truth. To know absolute truth. How about worse? To be. He is the epitome. He is the being of absolute truth. 
In our postmodern world today, any truth claims are generally rejected outright. Of course, this has led our society away from anything resembling rationality, but the issue still stands. The idea is that we can't know truth. Now anyone paying attention would look and go, is that true? Right? It's a truth statement. We can pursue truth, but we will always fall short of it. Is that true? Anyone claiming to have truth is arrogant. Is that true? Anyone who dares stand for the truth are not to be trusted. Is that true? You cannot know anything. Do you know that you can't know anything? This is nothing short of insane, as I think I've just demonstrated. It's insane. As no one lives according to the presupposition that there is no truth. No one rejects the idea that they are going to cross a street with an oncoming truck because we really don't know if the truck is actually there. Nobody does that. To hold such a preposterous position, one must outright reject God. Not just dislike him, not just dislike his laws, but to outright accept the blackest of rooms as being beacons of light. These kinds of people live in absurdity. And it is truly a gift of God for any of these types of people to ever see the true light of the gospel. They have rejected all truth. And sadly, many of them don't care when you point out their absurdity. I think that's the most frustrating thing we run into, is when we point out the absurdity and they don't care. What can you do for such kinds of people? Tell them what Jesus said. If you are willing to do God's will, you will know. You will know there is such things as truth. And that I, Jesus, am the truth. Knowledge comes by faith. The second kind of unbeliever is one that looks around at the number of religions or the number of Christian sects and sees that there are many positions and disagreements on doctrine. We cannot seem to agree on even the essentials of the faith. There are too many factions, too much animosity between the groups. Therefore, therefore, they reject it all. I don't need religion because it's impossible to determine who is right and who is wrong. That's the thinking. These people don't reject necessarily that there is truth or that one can know truth, but they do reject God. And in that, they feel somewhat superior in their own personal beliefs or philosophies. I've run into this more than once. This superiority complex because they are above all this religiosity. These people don't reject they, they do reject God and in that I've said that already they don't bother getting involved with trying to hash out who is right or who is wrong after all how can we know for certain it sounds like too much work 
and there's probably a football game on or something, right? But there is an answer to that objection, isn't there? Jesus tells us, if your will is to do God's will, you will know. Knowledge comes by faith. That takes care of the unbeliever, but what about you? All of you here. What about you, the believer? What does this have to do with you? We often fall into the trap of not being an active member of the church, or not sharing the gospel, or not talking to people about Jesus, or not inviting people to church, because we feel inadequate. We feel that we don't know enough, and that maybe once we've gained enough knowledge, we can then be useful in the kingdom. But I just need to know more first. I don't know enough. I'm, I'm useless right now is the idea, right? That maybe with just a few more Bible studies, maybe if I listen to a few more sermons, then I'll have enough knowledge and then I can be active. Then I can be useful. I want to tell you, you have it backwards. Do you want to be used by God? Do you want to gain knowledge of the faith? You may be sitting there saying to yourself, Oh yes, I, I am willing to do the will of God. And with that will come knowledge and truth. Good for you. The good news is you've taken the first step in the right direction. But that's not the implications of the text. Let me ask you, what is the will of God? If you've heard me preach, I'm sure I've covered this numerous times, and you all know the answer. What is the will of God? The answer, your sanctification. That is the will of God. Said at least three times in the New Testament when talking about the will of God, it is your sanctification. God's will is that you will become more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ, every day. That's the will of God. So what does that look like? We have numerous letters and examples in Scripture to draw from. We have the letter of James. We've got the epistles of John. We've got numerous Pauline epistles to choose from. But let's just go with something easy. How about the fruits of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 23 But the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Sorry, let me start with love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yeah. Ha-ha. Now, as Christians, you already know that this is found in the Bible, and as such is the Word of God. Being the Word of God, we also know that these are attributes that should describe to some degree each and every one of us. Right? However, you and I both know that we're not anywhere close to perfecting any of these. That's a nice way of saying that there's every single one of us has a minimum of at least one thing to work on out of that list. At least one. I've got more than one. That's just me being humble. Someone gets it. <laughs> However, we've got lots to work on. Right? Do you really want to grow in knowledge 
of the wonders of Christ? Then how about doing something simple? Pick one of those fruits and make a concerted effort to improve it in obedience over the next month or so. I don't know. Let's pick something easy, right? Do you lack love for others? Make a concerted effort to think well and do acts of love for those around you for the next month. And see if God opens your eyes to his wondrous deeds. Maybe he will show you his love for you by you loving others. The more you love others, the more maybe God will show you his love for you. Do you lack joy? Are you a dour, grumpy person? For the next month, be joyful in the Lord, being thankful for his kindness and mercy, even to a grump like yourself. Right? If we can be thankful, we can't help but be more joyful. And as we become more joyful, the Lord will show us more joy. We will understand better. We will know better what it means to have joy. The idea here is that as you walk in obedience with the little knowledge you may have of Christ and the truth of his word, the more and more truth will be revealed to you. The idea is to be faithful with what God has given you and he will give you more. Knowledge of truth comes from faith. And faith is displayed by acting upon that truth which you already possess. So how does one come to know unless by doing? Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who speaks for the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Here we come to the second major point I wanted to cover this morning. Jesus spoke and taught in order to glorify the Father and by doing so can be trusted as there is no falsehood in him. See, his motives were not mixed. His motives were not confused. Jesus doesn't have to question his own motives as his motives are wholly the same as his Father's. There is an obvious danger here for us to learn from especially those in positions of authority. And I'm speaking first and foremost uh, for those in my position as pastor or elder. Although crowds like this certainly help with that. <laughs> right? If you've been paying attention to the world of religion, the trap of church leaders falling into glory-seeking for themselves can be and has been quite shocking. We have... I believe the premier example of this in the Pope, who is making a trip to Canada. He's here today, landed in Edmonton at 11.20 this morning. The office of the Pope has long been a position that lends itself to men who want to bask in the glory of religious enthrallment. And considering humanity's ability and bent towards worshipping the creature rather than the creator, it's an obvious marriage made in hell. Right? Like, it's not just the office. We have to keep that in mind sometimes. Is, is Yes, it's easy to pick on the Pope. But when you've got billions of people 
that lift the Pope up in that office to that, it, it's, a, it, it's a positive feedback loop. It really is. It's, it's not good. The same thing happens with various celebrities. It happens with politicians. It happens with athletes. The list goes on and on. But it's especially grievous when it is done by those who are to point others to Christ. My job up here is to point you to Christ, not point it to me. The Bible has numerous examples of the seriousness of the sin of self-glorification, even amongst those that are not part of the covenant community. It's especially grievous for those in the covenant community, but God takes it seriously even for those outside the covenant community. I'll just give you one example. King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. You're going to cover Daniel later, so this will be, be great. Daniel chapter 4. Twelve months later, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built by the might of my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Hope he didn't hurt himself patting himself on the back there. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. It is decreed to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from mankind to live with the beasts of the field, and you will feed on grass like an ox. And seven times will pass you by until you acknowledge that the Most High rules over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whom he wishes. At that moment, the sentence against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind. He ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feather of an eagle, feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity was restored to me. Then I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are counted as nothing, and He does as He pleases with the army of heaven and the peoples of the earth. There is no one who can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? You'll notice that the king, walking upon his rooftop, a very common thing to do back then, looked upon Babylon, the great city, the city which God had providentially had him ruling over, and declared to himself, from all appearances, not sure anyone else was there. However, look at what I've done. Look at all that I've accomplished. What a great king I am. What a display of my power and might. I'm so overwhelmed by my own greatness that I'm not even sure I can express them in words. You know, I'm, I'm just going to stand here and bask in my wonderful glory. And God is looking on the glory of your majesty, eh? 
God was a Canadian. Let me show you the glory of your majesty. And God proceeded to take this great king who thought much of himself and made him like the cattle. Could you imagine what the people must have thought? Where, where's the king? Uh, he's, he's out in the field. Oh, what's, what's he doing out there? Well, eating, eating grass. What do you mean he's eating grass? Has he lost his mind? You could say, right? You could say that. And God left him out there a good long while, seven years it looks like, in order for him to learn a very important lesson, one that we should all learn to heed, one that will keep us from making the same mistake. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. What do you have, Paul asks, what do you have that you did not receive? Paul here is asking a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. The point is obvious. Anything and everything that you have, you received. You have received it. Right? Paul goes on. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Christian, there is no reason to boast about anything that you have. There is no reason to boast about anything that you've accomplished. And when you do, you take the glory away from the one who's earned the glory and you're trying to put it on yourself. But pastor, you might say, I have studied. I'm a hard worker. I work hard. I've, I've built something out of my life while others have diddled theirs away. Didn't I have a little something to do with it? My answer to you is sure. Sure you did. You are being an obedient servant who has been given gifts from God in order for you to fulfill the tasks that he's given you. For what purpose? This is the important aspect. For what purpose? To glorify God and not yourself. King Nebuchadnezzar was given gifts of intelligence, gifts of administration, gifts of planning, and whatnot. I don't know all the gifts that he had. He, he was obviously competent. Let's give him all that. But what was his error? Attributing that which belonged to God to himself. He forgot what he was given all those gifts for. Not to glorify himself, but to glorify God. That was his issue. The king didn't look around at all he had accomplished and praised God, but he praised himself. God, in his mercy, restored the king, and upon doing so, what was the king's reaction? Then I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All peoples of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does as he pleases with the army of heaven and the peoples of the earth. There is no one who can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Talk about an attitude change. 
I want you to notice also the scope of the king's vision. He goes from looking at and praising himself over his accomplishments, which were not small in comparison to most men. I mean, good on him, right? And now he sees and thinks with a much, a much wider lens, you could say. He goes from himself, a mortal and flawed man, and his one great city, who had a powerful army that conquered the region rather brutally, to the immortal God whose reign is over all creation, not just a little city or an area, but over all of creation, who has a heavenly army that cannot be defeated by anyone, anywhere, who does as he pleases with who? All people everywhere. He does as he pleases. And there is nothing anyone anywhere that can challenge him from a, from a moral perspective saying, what have you done? King Nebuchadnezzar has learned a very valuable lesson. It took him seven years eating grass out in the field to do so. But he learned the lesson. He has no glory to bask in. Glory does not belong to King Nebuchadnezzar or anyone else for that matter. He has nothing that has not been given to him. And because he has nothing in and of himself, he has no reason to boast. If he has no reason to boast or glorify himself for all he's accomplished, then the obvious question is then who does? And you all know the answer. God. God gets the glory. I could give you many more examples of this in Scripture. It was funny as I was thinking through the examples. There's lots. There's lots of examples in Scripture of people glorifying themselves. Right? It doesn't end well for them. We could do an extensive study on the glory of God, a major theme in the Bible, but we'll have to do that another day. But for now, let's wrap up with this. To chase after glory is and has been for a very long time almost a pastime for humanity. We will even use the term rather loosely, I think when it comes to athletes chasing down victory in competition, we see it in military battles and generals chasing glory on the battlefield. Once again, this is an area of sinfulness that we all must watch out for. In the age of TikTok and other social media, the draw or the idea is to bring as much attention to ourselves as we can. I don't want to use the term everyone here, but I think the term many is far too small for this example. There are those that make it their goal in life to go viral at least once. Just got to do it at least once. They want to say something or do something. They want to post it on the internet in hopes of getting millions of views. Why? Why do they do this? So they can feel important? So they can bask in the glory of their accomplishment? And when really you look at some of these videos, you're like, well, there was 15 minutes wasted. 
right? Like you're going to forever. Actually, you're not even going to be forever known for anything. No one's going to remember you even if you do go viral. You're just a flash in the pan until the next flash in the pan. Until the next flash in the pan. Right? You and I can look at this silliness and we can poke fun at it, as we should, I think. But in some ways, we all do this, don't we? Over the past number of years, in our own Christian circles, we have seen many famous pastors succumb to temptation and fall into various sins, largely due, I think, to forgetting who they were supposed to be glorifying. They forgot they, they lost the script. With all the adulation and the book sales and the conferences and the flocks and flocks of people that want to take their picture with them and, and on and on, they forget that they are doing the Lord's work for His glory and not their own. Sometimes it starts with them being uncorrectable. You always know there's trouble in paradise, so, so to speak, when these leaders suddenly become uncorrectable. They begin to speak from themselves instead of from Him who sent them. No matter where we are today as a church, or as elders, or as deacons, or as heads of households, we must keep in mind that we are servants, and that we are servants of the high God, the Most High God, and that we, and that all that we have been given, whether it be children, whether it be intellect, whether it be money, whether it's jobs or titles or authority, we must work and do all things to the glory of God and God alone. I'm looking over here, I don't know why. We do this primarily by being thankful. That's how we do it. Thankfulness. You can't get a puffed up head when you're, when you're praising someone for, and, and thanking them. It just reminds you that this isn't yours. And not, thankful, not, not thankfulness like the Pharisee. Remember the Pharisee? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that guy. Woo! Dodged a bullet there. That sinner over there. Really happy I'm not that guy. We need to be thankful with an understanding of the renewed King Nebuchadnezzar. One that recognizes our weakness. One, re one that recognizes our frailty. One that practices repentance and more important, humility. Repentance and humility and thankfulness. One that seeks not his own glory, but seeks to glory and honor the one who sent him, namely Jesus Christ. As a Christian, we have been sent, and we have been sent as ambassadors of the Most High God, of Jesus Christ, and he is our King. It is for him. Through him and to him are all things. To Jesus be all glory and praise. And if we keep that in mind, saints, we will be better off. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for this day. We thank you for this lesson. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to be thankful. And help us 
to give all glory to you and to you alone. We have big plans here, Lord. We have big plans at this church. We want to see our town come to know you. We want to, uh, each and every day, do everything for your glory. And do not let us, Lord, fall into the trap of trying to bring glory to ourselves. May we always be pointing to you and to you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.